Out of the darkness, the roaring lion declared, the grave has no claim on me. I'm sitting over there trying to sing, taking off my glasses, wiping tears out of my eyes. How awesome is it that our God loves us that way? And he paid the price to set us free, and no grave could hold him. That's why we're here. That's why we're worshiping. That's why we're giving him all of our focus and all of our praise. So welcome. It's good to have you here last week. If you're joining us online, well, where were you last week? We're glad you made it back. Uh, if you're not aware, last week we had these terrible windstorms knock down the internet in this area, so we weren't able to live stream. So if you somehow missed last week, uh, we missed you too, and uh, we hope that you'll be able to go back. The, the uh, actual video is not available, but we podcast the sermon, so if you just go to whatever you use for podcasts and search Grace Fellowship Duarte or search Doug Spriggs or whatever, you'll find that sermon. So I want to encourage you to watch that because that was the introduction, the beginning of a new uh, sermon series that we just started last week. And last week we talked about sort of the perils, if you will, of being stuck. That sometimes in life you feel stuck. And I was, um, I was thinking of all these different ways I could illustrate being stuck. And, the, and the, my plan was I was going to tell you guys a story this morning about a time when Christy and I were sitting on a plane at LAX getting ready to take off and we got stuck on the tarmac for three and a half hours. And it was just terrible, well, worse for her than it was for me, but uh, she just had me to talk to. I at least had her, so there was that. But uh, I thought, man, that's my big stuck story. And then just this week, I'm sitting at home late at night looking for something to watch, and I'm on Apple TV, and I come across, there is a Broadway musical that you may have heard of that is called Come From Away. I don't know if you've heard of this show. It was... Uh, big Tony-nominated show at, at Hit Broadway in 2017, so it's a fairly new show. But uh, they had a video version of it, and I love musicals, and so I thought, I'm going to watch this. And so I set up watching Come From Away, and uh, let me tell you a little bit about this story. It's based on a true story, if you're not aware of this, um, and it took place about 20 years ago. And uh, there's this little town in Newfoundland called Gander, Newfoundland. And uh, the thing about this town is that there are 9,000 people who live in and around the town of Gander. That is a small town. I was trying to figure out how small is that, what do we compare that to, and I looked up, you know, uh, California towns to see what the comparison would be, and the comparison is Mentone. And some of you are like, uh, what's Mentone? Exactly. Right? So 9,000 people in this town. But the weird thing about this town is that with only 9,000 residents, they have a huge international airport. Now, what in the world is a town of 9,000 people doing with a huge international airport? Well, the reason they have it is because back in the day, when they first started transatlantic flights, the planes could not make it all the way from Europe to the United States without refueling. And there's very few jet fuel stations in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So they put this, um, this uh, airport in Newfoundland so that as soon as you hit land, you would have a place to land, refill your plane, and you could get all the way to the United States. So they had this big airport in this little tiny town. But I don't know if any of you heard about this, 
But in that September, 21 years ago, uh, let's see, it was, I want to say, September 11th, yeah. September 11th, 2001, something happened, right? And as the planes began to crash, all of a sudden, the decision was made that every plane in North America had to ground immediately. And so wherever you were, they said, go to this, this nearest airport, and it was chaotic, and it was crazy. And so they thought, you know what, where could we send all these planes along the eastern seaboard? They sent them to Gander, Newfoundland. And these planes landed. In that day, they had 38 giant planes land in this little town of 9,000 people, which doubled the population of the town. So all of a sudden, you have all of these planes that are landing in this tiny little town, and they don't know what's going on, and they don't know when they're going to be able to take off, and they don't know when they're going to get to their destination. What they didn't know was that planes were going to be grounded for five days. <laughs> so all of a sudden, this town of 9,000 people has to host 7,000 more people for a week almost. One of those planes... Uh, sat on the tarmac not knowing what had happened, not knowing where they were, not knowing why they were grounded for 28 hours. And I said, I don't think I could tell my LAX story anymore. Uh, <laughs> but I did hear that what they did was, in order to keep the people happy, they took all the little alcohol bottles and they just distributed them among the plane. <laughs> So it turned into a party until everybody was so drunk that it turned into ugliness. But anyway, 28 hours on the tarmac waiting and then five days in this little town. No change of clothes, no access to anything, no way to talk to anybody. Man. So I decided I'm not going to tell you my LAX story. It doesn't add up. But after watching that, I was thinking, man, that's a long time to be stuck. That's a hard way to be stuck. And then I started thinking, some of us have been stuck a lot worse than that. In my own life, you know, I grew up in an alcoholic home. I felt stuck for 18 years. Some of you have been in abusive relationships for way too long. And you know what it is to feel stuck. Maybe you have experienced extreme poverty, even homelessness. And you feel like, how do I get out of this? I can't even find a shower so I can get a job interview, so I can get a job. Others live with daily chronic pain. And you can't see it. And you don't know that they go through their life in extreme pain all the time. There's a lot of ways to be stuck. And, and just in my personal devotional time this last week, uh, I was reading in 1 Samuel. And I was reading about the story of Hannah. It's a well-known story. A lot of you are familiar with it. Uh, Hannah, who became the mother of Samuel. But at first, Hannah was unable to have children. And we read that and we think, okay, well, that's true of a lot of people. That, that must have been hard. But okay, you get past it. Not in that culture. In that culture, the value of a woman is her ability to produce 
male offspring. That's the truth. And so the bottom line was in that time, in that culture, in that day, a woman was made to feel completely valueless, completely pointless, completely unnecessary if she could not produce children. And so if, if a, a man and a wife got married and they didn't rather quickly have a pregnancy, then uh, the decision would be made that the husband would have to add a second wife because otherwise he has no legacy. And so you, you've heard about this, and there's, it happens multiple times in Scripture. I mean, this happened with Rachel and Leah, and this happened with, uh, you know, um, Sarah and Hagar, and, and it, it happened multiple times where the, the, there was no offspring, and so the legacy of the man was going to come to an end, and so he added a second wife. And in the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, it tells us that when he added this second wife, whose name was Peninnah, by the way, uh, that as soon as they got married, she just started popping out children left and right. And so imagine being Hannah, your husband, who you married because you love and he loves you, you're unable to produce children, and so you already feel very small, and now this other woman comes into your life sharing your husband's bed and starts um, giving birth to his children. And it goes on to say that Peninnah mocked Hannah regularly about this fact. And you go, what a jerk this woman was. And then you put yourself in her shoes. What must it have been like to have been Peninnah? This is a woman who is married only as a concubine. She is married only for the purpose of being able to produce children. She knows quite well that he loves the other wife, but she's just there to serve the purpose that she needs to serve. Imagine how small she feels. Imagine how unfulfilled she feels. Imagine how brokenhearted she feels. And so she comes after Hannah with fangs out and she is ready to fight all the time. And so both of these women are absolutely miserable because both of them are stuck. And I'm reading this, and I'm just going, wow. What's it like to be that stuck? And so the truth of the matter is, I don't know what reasons you've been stuck, but all of us know something about what it's like to be stuck. There's a lot of ways to get stuck. And so last week, we started this series entitled Forward Progress, talking about, okay, how do we actually get moving? How do we get moving as individuals? How do we get moving in our marriages? How do we get moving in our families? How do we get moving as a local church? Do we have to be stuck or can we actually get moving? And, and I sort of outlined this series and came up with a plan for how we're going to do it. And my plan is this. We're going to take a quick glance at Jesus' calling of the fishermen, which we did last week. Um, and how they had to leave their nets and, and, and their boats behind so that they could become something that they had not been, right? And then we're going to move from there and we're going to take a quick glimpse at Philippians chapter 3 by way of introduction so that we would be able to see what Paul had to say about how do you get your life moving forward and uh, make progress in your walk with God. And I promise we're going to get to the point where we get into some pictures in Scripture of people who are doing just that. But as I was trying to get there this week, I came to the conclusion that I was stuck in Philippians 3. 
I couldn't find my way out of Philippians 3. I just kept coming back to Philippians 3 and going, we haven't said enough about this. We haven't really explained this well enough. Where Paul tells us in Philippians 3 about his personal motivation. This is, this is Paul's big statement about sort of what does it mean to get your life moving? How do you actually be successful? It's sort of a, a, a leadership book, sort of a how-to book, sort of a self-help book, all in a few little verses there in Philippians chapter 3. And I was sitting in my office this week and I looked at my bookshelves and if you've been in my office, there's there's floor-to-ceiling bookshelves on both walls, and they're, they're just filled with books, and, and, and I have them sort of categorized by topic or subject, and, and I have two um, shelves that run all the way across that are just leadership books. And I sat there, and I just did this and counted them. came to 115 books on leadership in my office. Have you read them all? Yep. And you know what I found? That in all these books, they all say something about setting goals. They all say something about making plans and sticking to those plans. They all say something about vision. They all say something about gathering resources and building teams and motivating people. They all talk about those things. And yet when Paul, the great thinker of his day, writes his manifesto on what does it mean to actually lead a life of power, he doesn't mention any of those things. So let's go together to Philippians chapter 3, New Testament, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So it's after Ephesians and before Colossians. And go to Philippians chapter 3. And again, let me just say, uh, if you missed this last week, you need to go back and listen to the podcast of that message so that you can get it because it all ties in together here. So there's some stuff here I'm not going to explain today because I got into it last week. But I want us to read together Philippians chapter 3 beginning in verse 7. Paul says this, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and be conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's his manifesto. This is life that matters. This is how you make sure you live an abundant life, Paul says. How do you do it? Is it about goal setting? Nope. Is it about plan making? Nope. Is it about team building? Nope. Is it is about writing a good mission statement? Nope. Is it about motivating people? Nope. Is it about closing the deal, making the sale? Nope. It's not about any of those kind of things. And it's, it's not even in this section for Paul, the theologian, about theological distinctives. And it's not, certainly, about health, wealth, and prosperity, which is what we all want to write books about these days because that's what sells. When Paul tries to summarize what his life is all about, what motivates him, what, what gets him out of bed in the morning, what, what keeps him going, what defines him as a person, he just keeps mentioning knowing and walking with Jesus. Go back and look at, with it, at it with me. Verse 7, he says, These things that were gained, those things I've counted as lost, why? For the sake of Christ. 
Verse 8, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The end of verse 8, that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, the, in Christ, my faith is in Christ. Verse 10, that I may know him. Verse 11, and I, in order that I may attain from the resurrection of the dead. Whose resurrection? Christ's resurrection. Over and over and over and over, he says it in as many ways as he can. The way you define successful living, says Paul, is in Christ. It's about your relationship with Jesus somehow. Now, full disclosure, I struggle as a preacher with passages like this. And the reason is, is pretty simple, because as a preacher, on the one hand, I want to make all of this highly practical. I want you to go home with a list in your head, five things beginning with the letter B that I'm going to do that are going to be different this week so that I can apply God's will to my life and apply God's word to my life. I mean, um, I, I want to give you that. And I want to avoid sort of religious-sounding Christianese cliches. You know, I, I, I want to I avoid just saying, so press into Jesus. I said that one time to a lady in a counseling session. I said, you know, you just need to press into Jesus. And she looked at me with almost anger in her eyes. And she goes, yeah, you've said that a hundred times. What does that mean? And I went... Uh, I'm not exactly sure what that means. But it's, it sounds good. Press into Jesus. Okay, how do I do that? What is it? So, so I get stuck because this is preaching 101, you guys. Be specific. Be practical. Uh, give them something to take home. Give them something to do as a result of all this. But I can't get past the fact that when Paul is trying to describe the victorious Christian life, he couldn't really get much past the idea of knowing Christ. He couldn't get past the idea of walking with Jesus. He couldn't get past being, <clears throat> being found in Christ, right? And so he's using these big Christianese cliches, and I'm waiting for him to explain, and he doesn't. And he doesn't give me five alliterative points that I could take home and do differently this week. See, I'm afraid that if we're not careful, we might be in such a hurry to skip ahead to the practical application that we miss the whole point of Paul's teaching here. You see, Paul had already lived a life full of doing religious stuff. That's what he talked about in the verses leading up to this, right? He talks about all these great things that he had done, how he had the right credentials, how he followed the right rules and jumped through the right hoops, how he was very zealous about his faith. I mean, he was zealous to the point that he actually went about from town to town looking for Christians so that he could kill them or put them in prison in order to stop this false religion of Christianity because his religion of Judaism felt threatened by this, and that was his religious zeal. But something happened on the road to Damascus, and it changed his life forever, and it changed our lives too. You could read the details of this in Acts chapter 9, but let me give you the bottom line. That day, Paul met Jesus. That day, he entered into a relationship 
with Jesus. It got beyond religion. It got beyond theory. It got beyond doctrine. And he actually met Jesus. And my friends, it's the relationship with Jesus that changes everything. So you remember the, the conversation that Jesus has with the guy, we don't know his name, so we've given him a title. He's known as the rich young ruler. You know that? It's in Mark chapter 10. Take your Bibles, go back to the Gospel of Mark. Let's take a look at this briefly together. In Mark chapter 10, we have this guy who we call the rich young ruler, and uh, he's, he's coming to talk to Jesus. In fact, we're going to pick it up in verse 17, Mark chapter 10, early in your New Testament, Matthew, then Mark. Go to Mark chapter 10, and in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, let me just read you this short passage. Here's what it says. As he, that's Jesus, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, let's stop there. He's just moving along with this sort of entourage, going from one place to another. He's got somewhere to be. And this guy comes sprinting up out of nowhere. And when he gets to the front where Jesus is, he falls down on his knees in front of Jesus. And he's like out of breath panting. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And guys, this is the universal human question. This is religion. What must I do? We're all trying to figure out how we can work our way into, into God's, uh, you know, onto his team. How we can somehow impress God enough that he would say, you deserve heaven and not hell. The problem is we look in the mirror every day and we go, yeah, I can't even convince myself of that. We know we're broken. This guy knows he's broken and he runs up to Jesus, falls on his knees and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 18, and Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. <clears throat> and he said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up, which means he's a liar. But that's what he says. Verse 21, looking at him, I love this. I love that. I love that Mark includes this point. Looking at him, Jesus felt love for him. He felt love for him. And he said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. But, these words, uh, by, but at these words he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And most of us have heard this story before and we know this guy is so attached to his wealth and his stuff that he missed Jesus and it's this incredibly sad story. But I want you to notice what it says. He says, one thing you lack. Okay, what's the one thing? Well, we know the answer, right? Go sell everything. Give it away. No, that's not the one thing. The one thing is at the end of the statement, follow me. It's just one thing you lack. You're not following me. And by the way, what's getting in the way of you following me is all this stuff you're so devoted to. So get rid of the stuff so it's out of the way so you can do the one thing. And the one thing is follow me. 
It's the same calling that he gave to the fishermen. Leave your nets and your boats and your families behind and come and follow me. And as you follow me, I'll make you who I made you to be. That's his invitation. The rich young ruler got the same invitation that Peter, James, and Andrew, and John got. And he went away saddened because he owned much property. One thing. It's the relationship. Listen, let's not complicate this. The definition of the abundant life is to follow Jesus. The definition of the abundant life is to walk with Jesus, to know Jesus. Listen, let me put it this way. You can't skip Jesus and go straight to Christianity. Let me explain what I mean. We, we sometimes want to be Christians, so we go, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, you're going to have to join a church and you're going to have to stop all that um, you know, sinful stuff in your life and you're probably going to need a, a fish to put on the back of your car and a really cool t-shirt and listen to the right music. There's all this stuff you need to do because you want to be a Christian. Jesus is not interested in you being a Christian. He's interested in you knowing him. It's not about all the trappings. He says, know me. We can't skip Jesus and go straight to Christianity. In my family, um, we grew up playing Monopoly. Now, I know you play Monopoly in your family too, but not like we do. Monopoly for us in my household where I grew up was like a religious zealotry. We played it seriously. And everyone in my family from a very young age was taught all the details of every rule and we knew what every card said. We knew what the rent was on every single property, no matter how many houses or hotels were on it. We knew how to win at this game. In fact, the reason I married Christy was because when she came to my family and we played Monopoly, she did not run screaming from the room. Literally, it was not unheard of in my family for a full-grown adult to flip over the table and storm out of the room because he didn't like how it was going in Monopoly. Monopoly was a big deal in my family. Have I made my point? I think so. Okay. In Monopoly, I know you know the board. There's a go space. And then you got like Mediterranean and Baltic and the tax thing and all and the railroad, right? And then and then there's a chance right? You land on chance, you're going to pick up one of those red cards. Now picture the games going on and it's deep in the game. It's late in the game. All the property is owned. There's hotels and houses everywhere. And you're just heading off because now you've got to get past all these places without losing all your money, right? But if you're lucky, you land on chance and you pick up that red chance card. And what does it say? Advance to go, collect 200 bucks and you pick up your little uh, cannon and you fly past the hotels and the houses of your opponents and you land on go and you say, give me my 200 bucks. That's what we're trying to do in our Christian lives. We're trying to skip the Jesus relationship and just be Christians. Guys, the definition of being a Christian is to know Jesus, to walk with Jesus. You can't skip it. 
Too many Christians talk about a personal relationship with Jesus, but instead of pursuing that relationship, we get busy doing Christian things. Going to church, tithing, volunteering, trying to love other people who are hard to love. My friends, if you want to experience abundant abundant life and eternal life, you can't skip Jesus. It's all about Him. In fact, let me, let me try to help you see this again. You're in Mark. Turn to the left to the book of Matthew, first book in the New Testament. We're going to go to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is arguably, not, not even questionably, the, the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of the world. We get these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and Jesus is just standing before a crowd giving this amazing teaching like nothing they've ever heard before. And as he comes to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to pick it up in chapter 7 of Matthew. We're going to pick it up in verse 21. Jesus has some shocking words here. After all that he has said, here's what he says in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, I don't know about you, but if I see a person who's able to prophesy, cast out demons and do miracles, I say, that's a God follower. That's a godly person. Jesus says that's not the criteria. He says, there are people who have all of the trappings, all of the look. They know all the verses and they, and they teach the Sunday school classes and, and all of that stuff. And yet, there's going to come a day when they're going to come to him all ready to be commendated for all that they've done. And he's going to look at them and say, I never knew you. Jesus says the criteria is not all of that impressive religious stuff. It's knowing him. And this is probably a good place uh, to, to stop and just explain the language a little bit because English, again, is such a terrible language. And it's so limiting in so many ways. And almost every other language I know of has multiple uh, different words for the verb to know, right? So, so whether that's Greek or Hebrew or almost any language I'm aware of. In fact, you know, for me, I, I speak Spanish. And so I, I remember Spanish, um, Spanish one, freshman year of high school, first couple of weeks, you have to learn some key verbs, and, and you have to lear, learn the verbs for to know, right? And one of those verbs is saber, and saber means to know a fact. Two plus two is four. Two, yeah, two plus two is four, right? So that's what saber means, to know a fact. But there's another verb, conocer, and conocer means to know a person. Now, in Greek, it's the same way. The verb for to know a person and the verb for to know a fact are completely different words that have nothing to do with one another. So in the Bible, for instance, when it says something like, and, 
and Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore a son, we're talking about a relational knowing. Do I have to explain that or we got that? Okay, there's, there's a relationship there, right? Talking about knowing a person. And when Jesus is talking about this issue of not knowing these people, what he's saying is, I know about you. I know about the miracles and the religious stuff and the prophesying. I know about all that stuff. Here's the problem. I don't have a relationship with you. You skipped Jesus and just went to the religious stuff. No wonder so many people are so turned off by what they think Christianity is. Because what they've been exposed to is religion without Jesus. Guys, Jesus is the whole deal. He's the whole deal. My wife and I are going to be celebrating our 36th wedding anniversary this May. Yeah, you should cheer for her. <laughs> um, but I tell you that to say, we know each other pretty well. We have been known to finish each other's sentences. I even know how to interpret the look. Right? There are certain looks, right, husbands? There are certain looks that uh, she doesn't have to say anything. I know when I'm in trouble. Right? There's a look. I know when it's like, hey, um, we've been here a really long time. I'm tired. I need to get to bed. There's a certain look that says, let's get out of here. Um, I, I've recognized these looks because we have been walking together, doing life together for all of these decades, almost four decades now. And we have gradually come to know each other better and better and better. But guess what? We're still getting to know each other. That's the nature of a relationship, right? By the same token, we all know people who are married, but they don't really have a living, growing, loving, vibrant relationship. They're still wearing their wedding rings. They haven't filed for divorce. They still live in the same house. Their names are on the same bank accounts and the same mortgage papers and all of that. They're parents to the same children. They, they, they sleep in the same bed. But their relationship is gone. We call it marriage, but it's not what God had in mind when he created marriage. Amen? So... So when Jesus is talking about this importance of knowing him, this importance of knowing him, he's talking about something more than just the outward trappings that define us as Christians culturally. He's talking about a relationship. And here's the thing, for too many people, Christianity is just a formal religious set of stuff to do. There's, there's church buildings today that are just filled with people. They have all the trappings, but Jesus doesn't know them. Christianity is not a religion with a set of rules and prescribed practices. Christianity is a relationship with the living God. But here's the rub. We still need something practical to walk out of here with. We, we, still, we still want to know, okay, I, it's about the relationship. How do I do the relationship? 
Right? What, what do I need to do to get to know him? What are my three steps to maturity in my relationship with Jesus? What is the formula? What are the boxes that I'm going to need to check off so I can guarantee this growing relationship with Jesus? And guys, that's not a bad thing. It is not bad for us to go, I need a practical application. I need to know what to do with this because without some practical steps, we will never change and grow. At the end of Matthew 7, right after these verses that we just read, he talks about the wise and the foolish builders, right? And he, he talks about the one guy who builds his house in the sand, and when the storms come, it washes his house away. The other guy builds his house on the rock, and when the storm comes, it endures. Now, what is the difference between these two guys? It's very clear. When Jesus finishes, he says, uh, in verse 26, he says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. If you act upon his words, see, these guys had the same thing in common. They heard his words. One of them acted upon them and one didn't. One ended up in destruction and one ended up in glory. So there is definitely a need for us to go, okay, how do I act upon God's word? In John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet, right? And then he gives them this lesson about servanthood and washing each other's feet and all that kind of stuff. And when he does that, he teaches them this lesson. But then in verse 17 of John 13, you don't have to look it up. You can look it up later. He says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So, so they have this incredible blessing. How many times have you thought, man, well, if, if God just spoke to me directly, then I would do fine. You know, I could do what he wants if I do. He would just tell me what, what an advantage these disciples had. You know what he says? He goes, you can hear these words all you want, but you're not blessed until you do them. So the practical side of this really, really, really matters. And I used a word picture with my grace group this week talking about this issue, and, and some people said, yeah, that's helpful for me. So, so let me wrap up my message today with this word picture. Relationships are like a spiral. All relationships are like this, right? You know this from experience. It's either an upward spiral in that relationship where things are just building and getting better, or it's a downward spiral, right, where things are falling apart and getting worse. And that happens all the time. You see it in marriages, you see it in friendships. You see it in business relationships. Um, and it's just as true in your relationship with God. So let me give you an example of a downward spiral uh, in your relationship with God. I go through some trials. I go through some really hard times. And because I'm really struggling, the temptation starts coming into my life in, in huge amounts. And because I'm struggling, I give in to those temptations. And because I've given in to those temptations, now I feel guilty. Because I feel guilty, I don't want to be in the presence of God. So I begin to stop meeting with him for prayer because how do I talk to him with it? And he knows what's going on and I don't want to talk about what's going on. And because of my relationship with God is beginning to drip, I stop sharing with my prayer partners. I stop attending my grace group. I stop going to worship. I stop doing all these things. And that makes me further from God. And as I get further from God, I get more depressed and more depression leads to more temptation. And that leads to more failure. That leads to more guilt. You see the spiral? The same thing happens in an upward way. 
that, that as I walk with God, I go through some trials, but this time I turn to God in prayer. I make it about him. I begin to seek his face. I begin to ask him for help. I cry out to him. I share my burdens with my church family. There are some people that I trust that I say, listen, I need your help. I need you to pray for me. I need you to encourage me. I need you to ask me hard questions. I go and get some counsel from somebody who is wise. I go and get some prayer support from a friend who will just pray with me over the phone. I start to regain my enthusiasm for God. And in that process, I'm driven back to God and as I go back to God I want to worship I want to pray I want to read his word and the spiral goes up and and as I thought about how do we how do we make this really practical without giving you a list of five things to do here's what I'm going to say change the direction of the spiral of your relationship with God when that temptation comes to say because it's hard I'm turning away from God that's when you turn back to God When you are struggling and don't know what to do, that's when you cry out to God. When you feel unworthy, that's when you go and serve God. When you need to hear from God, that's not when you run to the internet or to the radio or to a friend, but you run to Jesus. You begin to do the things that build your relationship with him. You you spend time alone with him. You, You listen to him. You say, well, how do you listen to God? Read his word. That's where he speaks. You, you talk to him. That's called prayer. You, you serve him by getting involved in the things that he's passionate about. You invest in the things that he cares about. You, you involve yourself in personal worship and corporate worship. You apply what you're learning. You get in a supportive community of other believers with whom you can be real and not be judged and you get supported and you get encouraged and you get built up. You join a grace group. You go to the youth group. You go to the Bible study. But all these practical things are not the point. They're the means to the end. The end is a relationship with Jesus. The point, as Paul said, is to know him. Let me just read to you. You don't even have to turn back to it. Let me just read to you one more time as we close. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Which way is the spiritual spiral spinning in your life? What step might you take to change the direction of the spiral so that you're moving upward with Christ? What will it look like for you just this week? I can't give you a list of five things. What would it look like for you this week to make your relationship with God the defining priority of your life? If we can get there, we can know the abundant life.